Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues, and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I'm by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers. However, I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together, we will learn about some of the lesser-known British murderers, as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. Hello everyone and welcome back to British Murders. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is now the 7th episode of Season 3. I've just got one quick shout out to do before I start this episode. I'd like to welcome my latest Patreon member Alex. Thank you so much for joining my Patreon, it means the world to me, so welcome on board to the British Empire. If you'd like to join Alex and receive your episodes a day early and ad-free if you're listening on audio, then you can join my Patreon, it's patreon.com slash britishmurders, and you'll also get access to my scripts if that interests you, and just be part of the community, I think that's the main perk. On this week's show, I'll be telling you about one of Britain's more obscure serial killers, I've searched Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and it appears like nobody has covered this case before. So it appears that I am going to be the first one to cover this. To be honest, the reason for that is quite logical. There's a very limited number of resources available involving this case, but it's still a story that I feel is worth telling, so I'll do my damnedest to do just that. It may be one of my shorter episodes, but never mind. I'm sure you'll still enjoy it. It's a rather bizarre and, quite frankly, unbelievable story. The timeline is unusual too, as we're looking at a serial killer whose crime spanned 35 years, though his victim count stands at three. The events took place in both Wolverhampton, which is in the West Midlands, and Finsbury Park, located in North London. When weighing up which area to focus on for my little historical deep dive, or shallow dive if we're being realistic, I ended up choosing Finsbury Park. I'm sorry to say this if anyone is from there, but I found nothing of interest when researching Wolverhampton. Finsbury Park is a Grade 2 listed public park located in the London borough of Haringey. The park was originally designed by landscape gardener Alexander Mackenzie and opened to the public in 1869. Thanks to a Heritage Lottery Fund grant, a total of £4.9 million was spent on the restoration of Finsbury Park between 2001 and 2006. Prior to that, the area was a hotbed of criminal activity and antisocial behaviour. Finsbury Park was awarded a Green Flag Award in 2007 and has retained it ever since. The Green Flag Award sets the benchmark standard for the management of recreational outdoor spaces across the UK. The scheme rewards well-managed public parks and green spaces by recognising the hard work of managers, staff and volunteers. The park has even hosted several music festivals, such as Rise Festival and Wireless Festival. Rage Against the Machine, great band, even recorded a live album, a video album at Finsbury Park, on June 6, 2010. This was on the back of their song Killing in the Name, achieving Christmas number one in our singles charts in December 2009. The campaign was a backlash against The X Factor, one of our talent shows, if you can call it that, for music and singers, 
who used to get Christmas number one every year by default. So we just thought, you know what? We're going to put the heaviest song with the most swearing in the charts and get it to number one. And it actually worked. What a Christmas that was. Okay, my long tangent is over with. Let's crack on with the story. Our villain today is named Theodore Johnson. He was born in Jamaica in 1954, though his exact birthday wasn't listed anywhere online that I could find. You may think, hang on a minute, Stu. This is British murders. Why are you covering the story of a Jamaican-born serial killer? The answer is simple. The crimes were committed in the UK and the victims were all British. For all intents and purposes, Theodore Johnson is basically half English as far as I'm concerned, as he's lived here for over 40 years now. Theodore had many siblings back home in Jamaica. He was one of 11 kids who grew up on a banana plantation over there. Now whenever someone mentions Jamaica to me, I instantly want to tell them that there's a small town there named Huddersfield. It's named after the West Yorkshire town of the same name in England, which is where I was born and raised. In September 1980, when Theodore was either 23 or 24, depending on his birth month, he moved to England with his first wife, Yvonne. He got a job working in a car garage doing repairs and maintenance. He probably did stuff like MOTs and services, that kind of stuff. My research didn't explain how long Theodore and Yvonne had been married prior to them emigrating to the UK. It would have been interesting to find out because it didn't take long for things to go south once they arrived here. In 1981, only a year after settling in Wolverhampton, the couple had an argument that ended in tragedy. The story goes that the Johnsons were due to go to church, so logically this will have been a Sunday, but Yvonne lambasted Theodore for what he was wearing. I'm not a churchgoer myself, but my understanding is that there is such a thing as church clothes. That's what I've gathered from watching The Simpsons anyway. Yvonne, who was 25 at the time, basically said, Look mate, there's no way you're going out to church dressed like that. Whether it was said as casually as that or not, we'll never know. But regardless, Theodore snapped. He was known to have a violent temper and an extremely short fuse, so it probably wouldn't have mattered how Yvonne had said it to him. He'd likely have lashed out anyway. Theodore grabbed a vase, or vase, <laughs> I say vase, and smashed it over Yvonne's head. He then pushed her off the balcony of their ninth story flat and she died soon after. During the three-day trial, which started on November 2nd, 1981, it was heard that Theodore had been bullied by his wife ever since they arrived in the UK and he was told to do housework and cleaning all the time. That's actually what was said in court. How dare Yvonne ask him to cook and clean? That is bang out of order. According to Theodore, Yvonne hit him with a broom while saying she wanted to kill him during the argument about church clothes. A police officer even told the court that Theodore was a battered husband. There was also an article in the Express and Star newspaper on Wednesday, November 4th, 1981, which described Theodore as a battered husband. They really kept pushing that narrative that he was a battered husband. Mr. Graham Hamilton, QC, who was acting as case prosecutor, said that Theodore told police he attempted to push his wife off the balcony twice, in total, by which point she was just hanging by her fingers. Once Yvonne was in that situation, Theodore just stood there and waited for her grip to weaken and for her to fall to her death. He then changed his clothes and went to see their son at school. 
On November 4th, 1981, Theodore Johnson was found not guilty of Yvonne's murder at Stafford Crown Court. He was instead convicted of manslaughter by reason of provocation. Provocation is one of the partial defences by which an offence that would otherwise be murder may be reduced to manslaughter. In accordance with section 1709 of the Criminal Justice Act 2003, the Sentencing Guidelines Council issued the following guideline. Where on a charge of murder there is evidence on which the jury can find that the person charged was provoked, whether by things done or by things said or by both together, to lose his self-control, the question whether the provocation was enough to make a reasonable man do as he did shall be left to be determined by the jury, and in determining that question, the jury shall take into account everything both done and said according to the effect which, in their opinion, it would have on a reasonable man. That's very wordy and convoluted and it makes not much sense to the general reader, or listener in your case, but it essentially means that the court ruled that Theodore was sufficiently provoked by Yvonne to the point where his reaction was due to a loss of self-control. He was sentenced to serve a mere three years in jail. Sentencing judge Mr Justice Talbot said in his closing statement, You have led a good and decent life, and you are not a violent man. You have been a good father to your two young boys, and I am satisfied that what happened happened because of the deep provocation you had been put to. How he would come to regret those words. Theodore's defence counsel, Anthony Palmer, said, it is clear that this woman resented his being in England and it is plain that she took it out on him from time to time but he did not retaliate. With regards to the three-year sentence, Judge Talbot said that he had to demonstrate the sanctity of life but he was treating Theodore mercifully. After his release, Theodore met a new partner named Yvonne Bennett in Wolverhampton. It's sort of a running gag here on British Murders that everyone has the same name but I swear to you I don't make this stuff up. The pair moved 120 or so miles southeast to England's capital city of London. Specifically, they moved to a flat in Finsbury Park. You see how all my stories and their locations come together in the end? Theodore and Yvonne Number 2 had a daughter together in 1991, but they eventually separated after Yvonne had an affair. In early 1993, when their daughter was just two years old, Yvonne had contacted the police in an attempt to remove Theodore from the family home. Now either nothing came of it, or the police didn't help Yvonne in time, as only a few days later she was killed by Theodore. Whilst their daughter was asleep, she's two remember, Theodore grabbed Yvonne's dressing gown belt and strangled her to death with it. He then phoned the police, confessed to the murder and left the house. He found a nearby tree and attempted to hang himself but was unsuccessful. After that, he turned himself into the police. Let's think for a second about that poor little girl fast asleep in her bed. Imagine her waking up with her dad gone and mum dead on the floor. She'd be stuck in a court, screaming, shouting for her mum, unable to get out, poor thing. That's truly a heartbreaking thought. Theodore was convicted of killing Yvonne Bennett in March 1993, albeit by diminished responsibility. The prosecution team surprisingly accepted that claim and went on to admit that Theodore was not only suffering from depression, but a personality disorder as well. When sentenced at the Old Bailey, Theodore Johnson was handed a secure hospital order. 
A Section 37 hospital order is an order to send you to a secure hospital instead of a prison. A court can make this order if it thinks that a hospital order is the most appropriate way of dealing with your situation. Can you guess how long he was in the secure hospital for? A grand total of four years. In September 1994, 18 months after being sent there, Theodore was granted escorted leave. That meant he could actually leave the hospital as long as a member of staff was with him. Less than a year later, in the summer of 1995, Theodore's leave was upgraded to unescorted leave for two days a week. The leave wasn't there just simply to allow Theodore to leave the hospital unattended. It did have a purpose. It was to allow him to attend a furniture restoration course put on by City and Guilds. City and Guild's purpose is to help people, organisations and economies develop their skills. They provide work-relevant qualifications and apprenticeships through to accreditation and assessments. Whilst on the course, Theodore met a lady named Angela Best. Angela had recently moved down to the North London town of Tottenham from the city of Manchester in the northwest of England. The pair met in 1996 and soon started a relationship. You won't be surprised when I tell you that Theodore opted not to tell Angela about his past convictions and his troubled relationships with his previous partners, but it wasn't only Angela that was being lied to. As part of Theodore's rehabilitation, he was obliged to inform the hospital staff if he entered into a new relationship with someone. The logic behind this is that some key safeguarding measures couldn't be put in place with regards to the new partner, and most importantly, they would be made aware of Theodore's past. Theodore applied for a conditional discharge from the hospital in 1996, however, his application was denied. Clearly, at that point, the hospital staff felt that he was still in a position whereby he should remain liable to be recalled to hospital for further treatment. A year later, in October 1997, Theodore applied again and this time he was successful. A mental health tribunal approved his application on the condition he tells supervising doctors and social workers if and when he formed a new relationship. The tribunal had no clue that he'd been in a secret relationship with Angela Best for the best part of a year at that point. The pair kept their relationship going for almost two decades before they eventually broke up in September 2016. That entire time, Theodore had successfully kept his past from Angela and kept their relationship a secret from both hospital staff and the police. Logically, he must have been behaving himself during that time. If the police would have been called after a random or violent outburst from him, the whole lie would have been exposed. So why did they break up, I hear you ask? Angela made a shocking discovery about Theodore's past. She happened upon a letter by chance which detailed one of Theodore's killings. She confronted him over it, and that led to him confessing about both his two prior convictions. Naturally, Theodore didn't take the breakup well, whereas Angela was happier than she'd ever been. That gives us a little glimpse behind the curtain of their relationship, which, to me, says that although he may not have been violent to the point where the police were called, he was still an unsuitable partner for Angela. After the split, Angela soon started a relationship with someone new, but she was constantly harassed by Theodore, who would declare his undying love for her every single day. On December 8th, 2016, Theodore attended an appointment with his social worker and psychiatrist. It must have been a productive session as he was found to be in good health and he wasn't found to be depressed. 
He continued to deny being in a relationship with anyone, which at that point in time was actually true, though probably not in Theodore's head. I'm sure he was in denial and felt like Angela and him were still an item. Theodore's next appointment was on December 13th, 2016, however it was postponed due to his social worker being ill. On December 15th, 2016, two days after the missed appointment, Theodore asked Angela round to his flat so that she could help him with an upcoming appointment he had with the Jamaican embassy. That was evidently nothing more than a ruse. After arriving at Theodore's flat, Angela was brutally attacked by him with a claw hammer. She attempted to protect herself using her hands, but it was to no avail. Angela was repeatedly struck in the head by a raging Theodore and his claw hammer weapon of choice. A claw hammer, by the way, has to be one of the most brutal household weapons going, right? One end is just solid steel and flat, whereas the other side is split into two claw-like prongs. Whichever side you choose to attack with is going to do damage, innit? But in two distinctly different ways. It's crazy that pretty much every house has one of these in a drawer somewhere. Then again, most people don't have severe personality disorders. Once Theodore had beaten Angela down with the hammer, he reverted back to his old ways and acquired a dressing gown belt. He then proceeded to strangle Angela to death with it, as he had done with Yvonne Bennett. Now from what I could make out, Theodore had tied a knot in the dressing gown belt and continued to attack Angela with the claw hammer, as she was basically rendered defenceless. After killing Angela, Theodore made his way to Chesant train station in Hertfordshire, just north of Greater London. Given what he did after killing Yvonne Bennett, you can probably guess what happened next. He waited for the 3.18pm express train to come by and jumped in front of it in an attempt to kill himself. Amazingly, Theodore survived. I told you this story was almost unbelievable. Whilst he was being treated for his injuries by paramedics, Theodore informed police that he had killed Angela and that her body was back at his flat. Police acted on his confession and weren't overly surprised to find Angela Best's body in Theodore's living room. A post-mortem examination found the mother of four to have suffered a minimum of six blows to the head. Angela's cause of death was as a result of a neck compression caused by strangulation with a ligature, the dressing gown belt in this case. Blunt force trauma to the head was also attributed to be Angela's cause of death. If we just come back now to the social worker who postponed Theodore's appointment two days before Angela's murder because they were ill, imagine how bad they felt. They probably thought, if I'd just turned up to that appointment, maybe Theodore would have got something off his chest, let out his frustrations, maybe he would have been in a better place. Obviously that's not realistic, you can't think like that. Someone like Theodore would probably have done that anyway eventually. But I just, I hope that person who was ill that day doesn't feel too much guilt because it's very easy to feel guilt in a situation like that, I would have thought. Theodore Johnson was now confined to a wheelchair because when he tried to kill himself by jumping in front of a train, he'd actually severed both of his arms so they came off. He pleaded guilty to the murder of Angela Best at the Old Bailey on Tuesday, January 2nd, 2018. Case prosecutor Mark Haywood QC explained how Theodore was extremely violent with the women in his life and noted his two previous manslaughter charges. He went on to say, The tribunal recorded Mr Johnson was well aware of the need for extreme caution with regard to any future relationship with women. 
that decision having taken place on October 30th, 1997. By then, Mr. Johnson had effectively been in a relationship with Ms. Best for about a year or so during his unescorted release from secure accommodation. With regards to Theodore's motive, the court heard that it was simply a case of Angela no longer wanting to remain in a relationship with him. Apparently during a home visit one time, authorities spotted what they described as a feminine wood carving in Theodore's flat. I've never heard of an item being described as such a thing before, but this item spelt the word love and was on the mantle. On January 5th, 2018, three days after pleading guilty, Theodore Johnson was sentenced to serve a minimum of 26 years in prison for the murder of Angela Best. Court of Appeal Judge Lord Justice Holroyd later said of his minimum term, We accept the submission that the sentencing of Mr Johnson was unduly lenient. Solicitor General Robert Buckland submitted an application to have Theodore's sentence increased and it was approved by three senior judges. The 26-year sentence was subsequently increased to 30 years. Valerie Archibald, one of Angela's sisters, described her as a generous and loyal person and the life and soul of the family. Lorraine Jones, Angela's other sister, said outside of the court, She was the heartbeat of our family. This convicted murderer tried to play the system as he had successfully done two times before. He used diminished responsibility as the cause of his murderous actions. This time, however, by eventually pleading guilty to murder 12 months after his arrest, he has shown in all cases he was clearly of sound mind. He knew exactly what he was doing when he plotted and executed the horrific murder of our beautiful and beloved Angela. One of Angela's sons, Raphael Best, said, My mother was the type of person who was always going out of her way to help people and unfortunately that was the reason she met her demise. It makes me feel ten times worse when I think of the kind person my mother was. Fabian Collins, another of Angela's sons, simply said, I now hate life. Annette Henry QC, who was mitigating for Theodore, said that he doesn't wish to be alive and hates himself for what has happened. Annette went on to say, We recognise the devastation felt by the family members. She explained how the mental health tribunal's condition on Theodore's release in 1997 was flawed as it relied on self-reporting for any new relationships. That is crazy when you think about it. All the onus and responsibility was put on Theodore to tell them when he started a new relationship, rather than them being the ones keeping an eye on him. Sentencing judge Richard Marks said, This was a deception that must have gone on for something like 15 years. The attack by you on Angela Best was sustained, vicious and utterly brutal. She suffered an unimaginably terrible death. Such repeated offending, resulting in three separate court cases, must be almost unprecedented. For many years of your relationship with Angela Best, it is clear that you repeatedly withheld this information from your supervisors with whom you met on a regular basis. Theodore had officially denied this on four separate occasions in 2006, 2011, 2015 and on December 8th, 2016 at his last ever appointment. Judge Richard Marks went on to say, One of the consequences of these lies is that the authorities were not in a position to tell Ms. Best about your past. It's clear she was an exceptional woman. It's clear that family will never be the same again. The nature and ferocity of your attack leaves me in no doubt whatsoever that your intention was to kill her. 
Camden and Islington NHS Trust, those responsible for Theodore's care in the community since 2004, said they would provide Angela's family with an independent report relating to Theodore's release. They stated that his treatment complied with the conditions set by the Mental Health Tribunal who oversaw his discharge from the Secure Hospital in October 1997. No public record of the report is accessible, so one would assume it was for the eyes of Angela's family only. And there we have it. That was the story of Jamaican-born British murderer Theodore Johnson. It's shocking to me that nobody seems to have covered this case before, so I sincerely hope I have done it justice. Let me know what your thoughts are on this case. Drop me a comment below or contact me on social media. I would love to hear from you. For more on British murders, as ever, check out I'm on all the social medias and YouTube if you're listening to this on audio, if you want to watch my face talking at you for... 15 to 30 minutes my merchandise is available at teespring if you want to buy anything on there then feel free i don't make anything from it profit wise it's just cool to think that someone's wearing one of my t-shirts or one of my hoodies if you do buy anything please contact me and send me a picture so that i can display it on social media i think it'd be really cool and i'll give you a shout out on an episode too if you want to support the show on Patreon each month, you can do that. The link's down below, or as a one-off, you can buy me a beer via buy me a coffee. I know that sounds weird. The links for them are down below. Um, biggest perk on Patreon, as I said at the start of the episode, is ad-free episodes, audio, and you can get them a day early and access my scripts and stuff on the channel. Anything I do receive fund-wise goes towards research and production. It goes back into the show. You can email me a case suggestion or just get in touch via email if you want or social media. The email is britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to leave a review of the show, that can be done on iTunes or Podchaser. They're always appreciated and they help the show's exposure massively. I recently got a review of someone who went by the name of Ardent-Armadilla. Not sure who you are, but if you're listening, you'll know. Thanks for the five-star review. Really appreciate it. So there's your little shout-out. That was from America. So it's nice to know that my American fans are enjoying this. It said, I love listening to the podcast. I knit and I listen. So (laughs) that's cool. Perfect relaxing voice while you're knitting. Haven't seen the YouTube yet. That's fine. And I'm really enjoying everything about this podcast. The host, his voice, the content. It's really appreciated. You should send me some of your knitting. Or knit me something. That'd be great. If you knitted me something in. America's a fair way away though. Postage would be a nightmare. But yeah, that does it for another episode. This is number seven of season three. There's three more left in this season, and then we'll have a two-part special, which I've already got in the works. That's gonna be quite um quite an in-depth one, quite a deep one that. So that's something to look forward to. But for now, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.